Hey, welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Check us out on the web at missiodeschicago.com. All right, everybody. You guys can uh, have a seat. Welcome, welcome. Let me, uh, let me pray for us one more time. That's cool. God, we thank you so much for uh, just the, the community in this room. We are excited about what you're doing in this church. We're excited about the relationships being built, the, the people you're bringing, and uh, the community you're forming. God, we pray that you'd continue to uh, shape us into a people that look like you, Lord, that we would love like you, that we would be with you um, and do the things you did. Um, God, would you shape us this morning through your word? Uh, would you stir our affections for you? Uh, may you meet us in this place. May it be a time where we are shaped collectively um, by the word of God, not by my voice, but by your spirit, God. Um, we, just, we just ask so badly that you would do a new work in our midst. Um, we just ask for, uh, so boldly that you would make us a people that um, are awoke to uh, what you're doing in this city and what your spirit is doing. Lord, would you take us out of our comfort zones? Uh, would you take us into places that we would never dream or imagine? May we sacrifice our preferences as a people. May we sacrifice, Lord, for uh, the weak and the lost and the vulnerable. Um, God, they so, we so desperately need your presence in this city, um, all of us. And so, God, we ask you to do these things by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so uh, welcome if you're new with us. We are starting a new series today called Outsiders. Um, in which uh, this, as, we, as uh, Tiffany mentioned, we're starting the season of Lent, which is a time to prepare us for the joy and the power of the resurrection. Um, and Jesus spent 40 days in the desert, um, you know, praying and fasting. And so we too today, every year, spend time praying, fasting, disciplining ourselves to uh, begin to move into the things that need to be like taken away from us that don't belong, right? The, the aspects of, of, of things that don't look like Jesus that we need to see chiseled away by the power of the Spirit um, so that we can experience the joy and the power of the resurrection come Easter. Um, and so during this series, um, we are going to look at a, the journey of Jesus to the cross, but we're going to do it a little differently. We're going to do it through the lenses of those that Jesus engages with on that journey to the cross and on the cross. And here's the thing. Everybody that Jesus engages with at the cross or on the cross is an outsider of some sort, if I could use that language. Um, in other words, they are on the margins. They are the disenfranchised of society, either due to their race, due to their culture, due to their gender, due to their religion. Um, they are on the fringes of uh, their world. And what's beautiful about this series that I think is powerful is, if, if I could just say this, as, as, a, as a white male, it's so easy to read the scriptures through my own cultural lenses and from my own social location. Uh, it's so easy to read the Bible in a way that only really kind of fits my framework and my own experience. All of us do this. We all read from our different experiences. And so what's powerful is through the series is to actually read and see the story of the cross from the perspective of people who were the disenfranchised of society. And, um, and so Jesus himself was an outsider himself. Um, but I, I want to see that, I want you to see that the marginalized they, because the beauty of the gospel is that he makes the, go the gospel comes for those who are poor in spirit, the weak, 
Um, we, we must come to him in that sense of, of brokenness. Um, the marginalized perceived what cannot ordinarily be perceived if one is at the center or sphere of influence of a society. That they actually have the privilege and position and the advantage to see the gospel first. <laughs> and so I think there's a lot that we can learn from these stories. And, um, and so often, in fact, the gospel is understood from this location of the center of society. But the Bible, when, when, it, when it's read, we see that, um, that it's often read from the center point to the margins. But what we see with Jesus here is in the cross, Jesus actually gathers those who are on the margins. They are the ones who are at the cross being faithful to witness the crucifixion because they understand what it means to go through such suffering. And so, um, just one quote here, let me read this to you from uh, a book that Ravi uh, recommended to me. Miguel de la Torre says, Yet, Jesus' audience was primarily the outcast of society. This is why it is important to understand the message of Jesus from the perspective of the disenfranchised. The marginalized of Jesus' time occupied the privileged position of being the first to hear and respond to the gospel. Now, before I get into the day's story, let me just first, a little prerequisite, that Je- just let me say this, that Jesus was really, ironically, the, the, the most ultimate outsider. Um, Jesus was, uh, Jesus' cross came to be, his blood was spilt for outsiders so that they could become insiders in the kingdom of God. And all of us, in a sense, if, it were, if, if, unless you're Jewish, we were all ethnically outside as Gentiles, so we should never have this position or, in, or mindset that we somehow, somehow are in the center of this narrative. Um, um, and so we've, we've, in a sense, are all outsiders, and we got to remind ourselves of that. But the thing that Jesus did is he's, his blood was spilt for outsiders. But not only that, you go back, we taught on the genealogy of Jesus back in, during Advent, um, and we looked at it mostly like how, the, the key women that were brought into that passage. But the, the beautiful thing about the genealogy is they're sharing the lineage of Jesus, and it's all these like people who are seen as ethnically other or almost enemies that are in the bloodline of Jesus. So Jesus has reconciliation in his very blood. He's got Canaanite blood. He's got all these other people in his lineage that were seen as completely outside the Jewish faith, outside the ethnic Jewish population. And the writers of the Gospels are so radical and subversive to be like, you know what, he's got, Canaan, he's got Canaanite in his blood. So he, just even in his living, has this amazing sense of um, becoming uh, uh, the ultimate outsider. Um, he, he wasn't in the mainstream power structure of his day at all. Um, and then when Jesus is, starts his ministry in Luke 4, we read this, that Jesus kind of does this subversive yet powerful thing. Um, it says that he came to Nazareth, this is his hometown, and, and it, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, Jesus went to the synagogue of the Sabbath and he stood to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And so he unrolls this scroll, all right, and he's going to read this scroll. Um, and he says this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's quoting Isaiah 61. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Next slide. And he rolled up the scroll, (laughs) check this out, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And he, 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 was, he was doing this script, reading the scripture saying it was about him. And the eyes of all those in the synagogues were fixed on him. And he began to say, today, today, what I just read has been fulfilled in your hearing. And they're like, what? What do you mean it's been fulfilled? 
And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. This is like the ultimate mic drop. Like Jesus is like, I'm coming. Uh, a, lot, a lot of times we think of just like John 3.16, like, you know, the, the, the culmination. But here, a lot of those on the margins, this is their culmination that like Jesus came to not just, yes, sometimes we over-spiritualize this. And yes, he did come to set those who are spiritually oppressed free. He did come to set those who are spiritually in captive bondage free. But he came to, to also like come to set those who are um, in, in, in physical and literal sense set them free. Um, and so Jesus comes and says, this is why I came. Now, check this out. This is what I want to show you how, how radical Jesus was and how much uh, this, this is, this, I'm not just making this stuff up. I'm not reading this through any kind of trying to modern day lens. That Jesus then pronounces from that point that there's a lot of lepers and a lot of people outside of Nazareth that need to be healed and haven't been healed. And then the people get so, they were, did you see that they were glad and happy that he came, that he, he's like, this is about me. They're like, this is amazing. We've got Jesus of Nazareth. And then when he began to pronounce and said, there's a lot of people outside of your ethnicity, a lot of people outside of your little hometown that need this message, that need this healing, that need to be set free, this is what they did. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And those, they rose up early and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him off the cliff. Jesus' love for outsiders was so radical that they wanted to throw him off the cliff when he decided that this is not for my hometown. This message is for those outside of these boundaries that you've created. And so Jesus' entire ministry was geared towards outsiders. And from there, Jesus, we know that he heals a man with an unclean demon. He heals a leper who asks him to become clean. He heals a paralyzed man brought through a roof. He calls tax collectors to follow him and dines with them intimately. And so the, the, the way out of this conundrum that we get ourselves in in our culture of us versus them is, 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 is counterintuitive because the, the, the way of, to get out of this us versus them mentality is to live a cruciformed life of the cross and experience the reckless love of God who emptied himself on our behalf so that outsiders could become insiders. And so Jesus invites us into this, this morning into a radically fresh way of relating to other people. Relating to people who are different from you, people who look different from you, who, people who do not have the same background as you. Um, Archbishop William Temple says this, The church is the only society in, in the world, it's the only organization in the world. It's like a massive rat up there or something, I don't know. <laughs> We've been hearing it all morning, I have no clue what it is. Um, yes, Lord. The church... <laughs> The church is the only society in the world which exists for the sake of those who are not members of it. Let me read that again. The church is the only society in the world which exists for the sake of those who are not members of it. And so the line between insiders and outsiders, us and them, is largely an invention of our own making. It's primarily a, a, a tool of control, and it's grounded in a worldview of scarcity. A worldview of scarcity, and it has little to do with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Amen? I mean, I don't know, you guys are a little quiet. I don't know if you're like with me or not here. Um, but I know this is, this is, this is like it's evoking, evokes a lot of emotions and sensitive things. Um, but we've got to see that, that Jesus was this ultimate outsider. And we need to see, as we move into this passage, we're going to look at a, a cultural outsider named Simon of Cyrene. There's only like one verse mentioned of him in three of the synoptic gospels, but his life and influence is crucial. Um, and so on this journey, um, first of all, on the cross, 
we need to see, like, reminded of the humiliation and degradation of the cross, of what Jesus went through. That, the, that Jesus was coming um, to this place where the Roman soldiers would, had already um, have mocked him, spat on him, um, put a, forced a crown of thorns on his head. Uh, they had whipped him with the catanine tails in which would have put, um, uh, uh, would have almost exposed his, his skin completely, um, ripped off. Um, and, and we are so accustomed to seeing the cross as a decoration that we have forgotten the, the, the shame. The cross was meant to be a shaming event. It was meant to be a humiliating event. Uh, it, 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 was, it was something that was meant to show a society at large what would happen to you if you bucked against the Roman, if you were to revolt. And it requires a considerable effort of imagination to enter into the first century world of Roman Empire so, so that we can understand the offensiveness attached to this crucifixion as a method of execution. Um, you know, often it's been said that, that like, you know, for a Victorian society, like the biggest taboo conversation is sex. Well, I think our modern day biggest taboo, taboo conversation is death. Something that we do not, I mean, it's, it's almost essentially um, taboo and it's been decreed like impossible to put the word death on a, on a, on a Hallmark card. Like it's a sympathy card. It's such qualms about death didn't exist for our ancestors though. However, um, they, they, crucifixion was something that was uh, taboo to talk about. Um, it was designed as a, an ultimate insult to personal dignity. Um, and the last, it, it's, 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 it was humiliating and it was a dehumanizing treatment. Um, and so uh, Joel Green says this, and I know this is, this is like, I'm asking you to imagine some difficult things, but you just gotta, we, have to, we cannot water this stuff down. He says, executed publicly, situated at a major crossroads or on a well-trafficked artery, devoid of clothing, left to be eaten by birds and beasts. This is someone who's crucified. Victims of crucifixion were subject to optimal, unmitigated, vicious ridicule. This is what happened to our Lord Jesus Christ. He suffered the most brutal of deaths, the most shaming of deaths, and he, was, he experienced the shame like no one other. And so when we say that Jesus Christ took upon himself the sin of the world, it means quite specifically he suffered the shame that human beings have inflicted on one another and that he above all others had done nothing to merit it. All right? And so now what I want to show you is, is there, in this moment of Jesus moving to the cross, um, a man named Simon of Cyrene is forced to carry the crossbeam of Jesus' cross. Um, uh, there's a, there's Two verses that I want to point out to you. Um, there's a verse in Matthew that doesn't say anything extra to this. Um, but these are the only verses we have of Simon of Cyrene. But he's named on purpose, and I want to show you why I think so. A certain man named from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they, the Roman soldiers, forced him to carry the cross. And as the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. Now, who was Simon of Cyrene? First of all, he was, where was he from? He was from northern Africa. He was, Cyrene is in the region of Africa. He's a, he's a northern African man. Um, he's here for Passover. Scholars aren't completely sure why. It's either one or two reasons. One, he is a Jewish convert, or two, he is there for trade for the Passover. Um, so he is just a bystander, innocent bystander, not there for any other reason except to be there for Passover. During that time, about 250,000 people would come to Jerusalem for this Passover event. 
And so Simon of Cyrene is there, and the Roman soldiers force upon him the cross of Jesus. Apparently, Jesus was too weak to carry his cross. Um, we know that Jesus, this really exemplifies the humanity of Jesus. Jesus. Most people who died of a crucifixion were on a, a cross for days. Jesus was only there for probably about six hours, we think. Um, so Jesus died fairly sudden of a death. So he's carrying this cross. Um, he, he can, he's either too weak to carry the cross or the Roman soldiers think he's too weak to carry the cross. And so there would have been two beams, um, the beam, the horizontal beam and the vertical beam. And they place this horizontal beam and they force and compel Simon of Cyrene, I don't know why, to carry this cross beam for Jesus behind Jesus. And so uh, a few things here we need to, to see about, about Simon of Cyrene. Now, um, First of all, I have to just ask, why was Simon grabbed and forced? By the way, some, some of you may have heard this passage taught that like Simon of Cyrene, it says that like the verse says compelled. Some people think that he was like in his heart compelled to carry the cross. Like, I'll go carry your cross, random stranger. Um, I, like, no, like Simon of Cyrene was not moved to his emotions to carry a stranger's cross. All right. Um, he, he was picked out. And, but we have to ask, why was he grabbed? Now, this is complete speculation. I'm not 100% sure why he was chosen. But we do know, that the, we do know the socio-political landscape of Romans, Roman culture. We do know the socio-political landscape of Jewish culture. We know all those who were present. And we can really probably be safe to say that this person was grabbed because he bared the markings of a cultural outsider. That either he, he, I, he was a black man, right? More than likely, he was a black man. And so I'm not imposing our modern-day views of racism into this passage, but the fact that he was a cultural outsider, that his skin was different, that his markings were different. You know, you, the story of the, the, the Good Samaritan, I don't know if you've ever heard that story, but the whole point is that there's this guy left without any, any clothing, half-dead, and, and no one knows what culture he's from because his, his markings aren't there, his, his gear is not there, right? Like, your dress signifies what culture you're part of. So this guy was clearly an outsider and looked different from Roman culture. He was different from a Jewish culture. He was clearly different. Um, and so he was chosen, and, um, and, and, and he was this innocent bystander, and, um, and we see a couple of things here happen to Simon of Cyrene. Um, first of all, throughout his life, somehow or another, there was a great reversal in Simon of Cyrene's life. Um, there, so now what we see is what the cross does is it, it reverses our status, reverses all of our statuses as being outsiders to being kingdom insiders. Now, here's what happens to Simon of Cyrene. We can, we can infer several things. Um, first of all, Simon of Cyrene was converted after experiencing watching Jesus die on the cross at some point. We know this because uh, Mark mentions his sons, Simon, uh, Alexander and Rufus. And Mark was writing to a Roman, more of a Roman population in the gospel, I mean, in the book of Romans. Um, he says, send my greetings to Rufus and Alexander. Now, Mark is writing this story centuries after Jesus' death, probably, probably around uh, anywhere between 60 and 90 AD. Now, more than likely, Simon, um, Alexander and Rufus, the sons of Simon of Cyrene, were actually living people during that time. And so he, imagine we're all sitting in this room, and I'm reading you this letter. Hey, I got this letter from Mark. And, and then uh, Simon of Cyrene, Alexander and Rufus's dad, carried the cross. And they would have been like, what? Like, your dad's in there, dude. Your dad's in the story. Like, they would have picked up on this fact. The fact that, like, it, all throughout the Gospels, whenever someone's named, I don't know if you ever think about this, when someone's name is mentioned, it's because usually they were actually a part of the Christian community. 
A lot of times you'll see random people mentioned that have no names, right? The paralytic man that we talked about last week. Um, There's no name. The the Seraphonician woman. We don't have a name. But then when there's a name, it's because they would have known that person. Simon of Cyrene was critical. This cultural outsider was critical as an eyewitness of the crucifixion. I want you to think about the power of that. I want you to think about the fact that there was these 12 disciples. Remember, all the disciples fled at the crucifixion. None but uh, the only person that's mentioned that may have witnessed the crucifixion of the 12 disciples was John. But he usually puts himself like a C in everything. He's like, I'm the one that Jesus loves. I'm the best. I outran Peter. I'm really good. And I was at the crucifixion. I don't know if he was there, but he says he was there. Um, but every other gospel writer says that all the disciples fled and abandoned Jesus. So now I want you to imagine this. You're a part of this inside group. You're a part of the Ragtag 12. And then you got this, 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 this cultural outsider who goes like, I saw it all. How do you think we got this stuff? How do you think we got the passion narrative that's written, that takes up two-thirds of all of our gospel narratives? I think we got them from people like Simon of Cyrene. He's the one who witnessed it and said, and now he is the one who's the eyewitness to actually write the gospel, be a part of writing the gospel narrative. He's the one who saw Jesus say, I thirst. He's the one who saw Jesus cry out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so somehow or another, Simon of Cyrene saw the way Jesus died. He invested that into his kids, Alexander and Rufus, and he was initially a part of the, the, the first community of faith. He was one of the most significant eyewitnesses of Jesus' death and resurrection, of his death specifically. And so this is amazing. I want you to think about the fact that someone, if, if, if someone of the margins having that kind of influence, that kind of power, that kind of significance in this gospel narrative that we overlook. Second thing, third thing, um, Luke sees this, the life of Simon, Peter, I mean, uh, Simon of Cyrene as an authentic picture of discipleship. He is the true picture of what it means to disciple, uh, be a disciple. So even though he wasn't a follower of Christ, this imagery of Luke stood out to him so much. Because you think about this, who was the, who was the one who was always talking all the time as a disciple, of who, was, who was always following Jesus, and who you'd think of as like probably one of the greatest disciples of the twelve? Simon Peter, right? So the irony is, as you're reading the story, it's like Simon Peter is going to be the one who's faithful to the end. And then what we see here is, no, there's a cultural outsider, Simon of Cyrene, who's actually the true picture of authentic discipleship. He's the one who actually gets it, following Jesus. This stood out to Luke so much that he uses that imagery to say all the verses that we know so well, that say, take up my, uh, Luke 14, and whoever does not carry the cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. This man would have captured the imagination of the early church. When they read this verse, they would have thought of Simon of Cyrene. Luke wrote this inspired by Simon of Cyrene. That he saw the fact that this is what he literally did. He took up Jesus' cross and came and walked after Jesus, following him to the cross. And Luke saw that imagery and goes, that is what it means to follow Jesus. That picture right there, all of us must do that. And this man inspired Luke, and, and, and it's the literally exact words in the Greek for both of those verses where we see that he, he bared the cross after Jesus. And so we talked, we, we, we really dumbed down that language as people who haven't gone through a lot of suffering. I don't know if you've ever heard someone like talk about something, they're like, yeah, you know, like, it's just the cross I have to bear. Like, I have an allergy to peanuts. You're like, what? No, that's not the cross you have to bear. No offense to those allergies to peanuts. But that's not the cross you have to bear. 
all right? Like, some of you have, like, we, we use that language just so flippantly, as if, like, some kind of foreign, and I'm not negating any version of your suffering. All suffering is felt and real. But what I'm saying here is that to follow the cross of Jesus, to carry our cross, is to participate in this redemptive suffering that Jesus is going to use to bring his kingdom about. And it's to, it is to receive suffering that, it is to enter into other people's suffering, it is to, to, to be persecuted for righteousness' sake, it is to be persecuted for being one who follows Jesus, um, and, and it, it, to be able to endure suffering put on you from the outside, from other people, um, and, and, and to be able to still have hope and joy. Now, um, not only is this picture of discipleship, but Simon um, has this unique privileged position of solidarity with Jesus. He had this unique privilege to be with Jesus in his humiliation and suffering. And as most people of us in this room are people of privilege, we don't think of the crucifixion as this way, but Simon had this unique privilege of sharing in this shame. And in communion and solidarity with our Lord, and his purpose in his involuntary response to the Roman demand that he carry Jesus' cross, he is pressed into service and has no choice but to obey them. And so it was fitting, it was fitting for this cultural outsider to be the one to carry Jesus' cross and not one of the twelve because what Jesus was about to do was stand in complete solidarity with the Simons of this world. He was about to stand in complete solidarity with the Simons of this world to the outsiders who do not belong. Um, and so um, this, this, situ- this solidarity perspective of, of entering into this redemptive suffering of Simon and Cyrene, it captured the attention of the African-American church. Um, the African-American church always will cling to this narrative um, of, of what they call Black Simon. Martin Luther King talked about this, um, and so he, in one of his sermons after returning from Palestine, he, he's telling the story of the crucifixion, and this is what Martin Luther King preached. When Jesus fell and stumbled under that cross, it was a black man that picked it up for him and said, I will help you, and took it on the Calvary. I think one day God will remember that it was a black man that helped his son in the darkest and most desperate moment of his life. It was a black man who picked up that cross for him and who took that cross on up to Calvary. God will remember this. And check this out. And in our struggles for peace and security, freedom and human dignity, one day God will remember that it was a black man who aided his only begotten son in the darkest hour of his life. Powerful stuff. So even though Simon Cyrene being forced was probably not due to like the same kind of racism that Martin Luther King experienced. It captured, this narrative captured so well the experience of people in color in America. That they clung to this narrative, that the history of the black church found so much solidarity and inspiration with what they call Black Simon. No, with, Simon is, 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 is conscripted in the service with, with no words of thanks, and that is what it means so much to have Jesus as Lord. He understands the burdens carried by those on the margins because he's carried those those burdens. Now, what what impacted Simon of Cyrene? I, I think two things. One is just I think he had to lock eyes on Jesus. I'm just use my imagination a little bit. I think he had to lock eyes in face to face with Jesus. And if you see the eyes of Jesus, I think you're going to be changed forever. And I think he saw Jesus the way he died. As an innocent man, and I think in that moment he realized this man is innocent, this man truly is who he said he is, and I think after that he started to gather around with with the disciples and the women that were the disciples and begin to hear all the stories. Like, come here, you don't have a clue who, who you just saw. That man that just died, 
He's the one who went to the Samaritan woman and, and said, here's a drink of water. He's the one who, who brought in Gentiles and ate with sinners and tax collectors. He's the one who would, who would go to, the, to, 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 to be touched by women and, and allow them to be healed when it was culturally taboo. He's the one who would go and touch lepers and make himself unclean so that they could be clean. That's the one you just carried the cross for. And I think he was probably just blown away that the mission of Jesus was to love someone like him and to love someone like you and to love someone like us. And so this impacted Simon to such degree. And so I just want to say that, that he had to be impacted by the love of the cross and the grace of the cross. And I pray this morning that you experience the love of Jesus, that you will experience the grace of Jesus, that through, because of the cross, no one should doubt the grace of God. No one should doubt this picture of, 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 of God's love, even though we live in a world of violence and, and, and sin, that Jesus like hung on the cross, not just for like an example, but as a power to die in our place, as a power to transform our life. We see this great chasm between the powerful and the powerless, and yet Jesus takes his power, who is God. And the, how does our world exercise power? Our world exercises power by showing how much we can grow things, how much we can, how much we can uh, dominate things. Jesus shows his power not by doing that, but by withholding it. That's how Jesus shows his power. He withholds his power on the cross so that the powerless can come near and experience the love and grace of God. That's good news. And Jesus comes and has solidarity with those who feel powerless. He has solidarity with those who are on the outside. Now, this impacted him to greater degree. And so I think Simon fell in love with the grace of God. He fell in love with, with who Christ was. And Jesus wasn't dying as, somebody on the, as, as a part of the, the powerful. He was a defender of the outsider. On the cross, he was known as an outsider. He was bringing on the cross justice for the oppressed, justice for those who have been pushed to the margins, and that's a God that I want to follow. Amen? Amen. Now, <clears throat> as you hear this, I, I sense like a little bit of tension in the room. I'm not sure, quite sure why. I don't know if it's because the majority of us are probably, probably, probably white people in this room or what. There, there's no reason to, to, to feel a sense of, of... I think one of the things that from Missio Day that this passage is showing us is that we've got to understand that like, what our own cultural lenses are when we interact with the world. I think we've got to understand that, like, I just want to speak to the white people in the room for a moment. We've got to understand um, this is not something that you need to, to feel personal guilt about, but we've inherited a, a, play, a place of privilege, that we've inherited a sense of, of comfort, and that we've we read, read the Bible through lenses different from people on the margins. It's just the truth. So the, the, the thing we must do as people is we must, first of all, we've got we've to see this. We've got to see the, the human dignity of every soul. We've got to see the human dignity of every soul, every soul and we've got to name the lie of, of racial difference. We've got to, as a people, name the lie that there's, a, there's narrative, great narratives out there that are just completely using power and control to, to, to push people down. This is not a political thing. This is a thing about Jesus Christ and God who made every person in the image of God. Every person in the image of God. That the, cross, the ground of the cross shows us that human dignity is worth to everyone. Every unborn person, every person that is an immigrant, every, 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 um, every disabled person, 
that's walked this earth, is own, own dignity, human dignity. No matter who you are, the rich, the white, the rich or the poor, the white or the black, the Jew or the Gentile, first world or third world, healthy or disabled, young or elderly, documented or undocumented, born or unborn, the gospel cuts across the boundaries. And what it indeed does is it crucifies all those boundaries. The cross crucifies the boundaries. Isn't that good news? And if we come to God, it will be through one Jewish mediator king or it will be none at all. And this king has come as an immigrant himself, to de- and, and to deny human dignity to someone is to kick against the cross. It is a kick against Christ himself. So when we care for the vulnerable, the poor, the diseased, the disabled, the abused, the orphan, the socially outcasted, these are not the disadvantaged, disadvantaged people. That These are the sort of people that God delights and exalts in as the future rulers of the universe, that it takes more than an American value to see this. This is what Jesus does in Matthew 25. And they said, he, when he, there's people that died and went to heaven, and, and God said, hey, you, you fed me, you clothed me. You're like, when did we see you naked and hungry? And he says, well, whatever you did to the least of these, you did to me. But I think we also have to be careful here that we don't come from people of privilege wanting to exercise relieving some kind of guilt and coming, and coming in and thinking that they, people need us. Because the reality is, people don't need us as white people, we need them. We need to have our eyes open. We need to hear their stories. We need to be transformed and to be able to be learners of these people so we can experience their salvation. Their salvation our salvation can be wrapped up into their salvation. C.S. Lewis says it no better. This was written over 30, 40 years ago, but it's so timely. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations... Twitter feeds, Facebook feeds, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. So, we need people who are, we need, we, we need people on, on the margins more than they need us. So we need to, first of all, we need to see the cross grounds human dignity. And second, we need to seek to understand. We just need to become good listeners. We need to be able to not question people's narratives and experiences as if they're just going through some kind of collective grief. We need to actually just sit and listen. I don't, I don't, I don't know about you, but this week I, I, I just, there was... Two people who saw, we all saw the movie Black Panther, and I wanted to talk about it, but really I was just for, not forced, but I just th- th- was, chose to listen. I just was like, listen to their experience their, of, this, of living as a person of color in this country. And it hurt so bad to hear. And it brought me so much grief. But we've got to be people who seek to understand rather than being understood. And we need to be people who listen with ears to, to, to hear and to listen so that we can be healed by someone from the outside, so that we can experience and, and listen to other people's experiences because we have our own limitations. And so um, we need to be people who seek to understand. Thirdly, I think we need to be people who, who do what Simon Cyrene did is, is, this, is understand more about redemptive suffering. Redemptive suffering is foreign to modern spirituality, which often just recommends uh, 
acts of mercy along the spiritual path places little value on suffering for the sake of the world. White evangelicalism today emphasizes individual spiritual experiences with a corresponding lack of interest in the human struggle for justice and dignity. Let me say that again. White evangelicalism today emphasizes individual spiritual experiences. Let me just sit with you, God. I'm just gonna, I just need this for me. I just need to get like spiritually constipated right now and have all this. Right? It's like this is like, I just need all this for me. Sorry to gross you out right there with that. But it's like we end up absorbing all this for us and getting consumed with that emphasis. But it does, and that's important to experience God. We have to do that. But it doesn't correspond with the interest of the human struggle for justice and dignity. So we need to learn to suffer with. We need to learn to suffer with. Because we need to learn to go and, and, and hear stories and suffer with. I mean, think about, I was thinking about just like the whole DACA issue right now. I mean, these are macro level things. I'm going to get into the micro in a minute. But, but the fact that that's expiring. We need to hear people, we need, we, we need to pursue people whose experience is different from us. And the fact that there's like ICE agents, what are immigration and custom enforcement, that sit outside supermarkets, Latino supermarkets, to make sure people are, are documented. But there's no one sitting in <laughs> by the Polish supermarkets. And they need, equally need to be here too. But what I'm saying is, is that's clearly a narrative of racial difference. And it ha- this has been going on all the way back to the 1900s when they stopped Japanese and Chinese people, banned them from coming in, and, and made it, it, there's always going to be some kind of racial construct playing out in how we talk about immigration. But we must just name it so that we can confront it and we can see it dismantled in our lives. And that's the large picture. But we also need to live in the small picture because I think a big issue with people of privilege is we love to figure out the macro and talk about the macro with nothing going on in our lives in the micro. If you don't believe me, go look at every white neighborhood in Chicago and where's the most messages and propaganda of inclusive messages. Hate has no home here. It's in the white neighborhoods. Every little, think about it, every white neighborhood has a message about how inclusive and loving they are towards everybody. Those messages aren't being portrayed around diverse neighborhoods because we're trying to figure out this macro, but we really don't want to change the micro. We really don't want to change our school system. We don't really want to change our, our little enclave, but we can appear like we but really the real rub. So what I, I, I pray that we do is we, we treat the micro in our lives as if it's the macro. We have to treat the micro as if it's the macro. We have to treat our relationships. We have to be intentional. We have to be, we have to be very mindful of this stuff. Um, if not, no, nothing in our life is going to change. And so we have to treat, we have to start with the micro rather than the macro. And we start with the micro. We start, and the best thing you can do in that is, is just this, suffer with. It, it, we might not be able to suffer with everybody, but if one member of this body suffers, we all suffer. So if there's experience of suffering going on, if one member suffers, all suffer together. First Corinthians says, if one member is honored, all rejoice together. So, so our goal here is to suffer with. It's not to come in and try to fix. It's not to come in and try to tell someone that you have the answers. It's to come in and, and, and to suffer with in the most meaningful way. The best thing you can do is just acknowledge the pain. You acknowledge the pain. That's it. Acknowledge the suffering. We're a part of a family, and we don't let people suffer alone in a family. And if this is our family, we don't let people suffer alone. And if you're only pursuing people that look like you in this family, or people that dress like you in this family, or listen to the same music as you in this family, when one member suffers, we're not able to suffer with them because there's no relationship. So we must suffer together when one member suffers. 
Amen? Amen. All right, so um, we must suffer with. And then um, lastly, is there a last one? I think that might be it. Um, all right, I don't have a clever ending, but just hang in there with me for a moment. All, all, of, this is, all of this is impossible without experiencing the power of Jesus' death and resurrection. He, none of this matters. It, this, is not, it is, this is not something to pursue that's because it's trendy in Chicago, and if it is, I pray that you're, in a, you're, that you're playing with fire because all you're going to do is just float from one agenda to the other. This is about the gospel of Jesus' kingdom and about the fact that when we are born again, when we have been experiences as resurrection, our lives are radically changed. And our relationships are radically changed. And we've got we've, we've to take that seriously. We've, we've got to walk with Jesus to the cross. We've got to see um, the cruciformed way of life as one of surrender of our comforts and our pleasures. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. God, we, we thank you so much for, for what you've done on the cross for us that you died for a rebellion to make us whole with you. I don't know, we, we're going to talk more about that in the coming weeks, but today, Lord, we just want to sit with the fact that we want to sit with the fact that your gospel is so radical that it, uh, it, it, it meets the powerless where they are. It empowers the powerless. It, it gives hope to the hopeless. Lord, we come as people who... Um, as a community, and I want to pray for those for a few people. Number one, I want to pray for you if you you feel like an outsider, if you feel misunderstood in this world, due to your culture, due to your race. Maybe you even feel like an outsider as a non-Christian, as part of this Christian community right now. I want to pray for you that Jesus has come, and He has mis- He has been misunderstood more than anyone else in this world. He has come to die to give you stand in solidarity and to give you hope. I want you to hear that this morning. If you are here in that place and you're ready to give up, some of you are ready to give up on Christianity, give up on Christians, give up on the church because you're tired of this divide of us and them. I just want to pray that that God would give you hope right now through the power of the cross. Give you hope for your journey. That He can do it. He can transform your life. He can empower you. And he sees you. And he sees your pain. He knows your pain. Second, I want to I pray for us who maybe don't really understand what it means to be an outsider. Maybe it's a little bit harder to imagine. I want to pray that we would, oh God, just give us, give us a transformed heart. God, would you, you've got to awaken eyes from the blind. You've got to do miracles. You've got to awaken our eyes that are blind be able to see with new lenses, Lord. I pray for new eyes to see, new ears to hear. Would you give that to us? Before we start lifting fingers and thinking that we're needed, would you give us new eyes to see, new ears to hear, God? We need you so desperately in this place. And for some in this room, you've never experienced the power of the cross making you a an outsider of one who's rebelled against God as one who's a part of his kingdom. I pray that you would take advantage of courses like Alpha and just begin to explore what does it look like to follow this Jesus who's radically different from anything in this world. It's in your name we pray, Jesus.